There was a steady flow of people over the few days that the exhibition was on. Some of the contributors and people who ran the opening night returned to spend more time exploring the objects, which I suppose is a great reflection on the exhibition itself. That's what we had hoped, that people would immerse themselves in it. Some people even came back two and three times. On one of the days, a visitor who had just come down the stairs and was on his way out the door briefly said, Thanks for that. It was really interesting. I was only passing by and popped in. We asked him, was there anything in particular that stood out for him, anything he remembered? He just smiled. An incredibly proud smile. Said, yeah. There's a picture of my wife up there. She was one of the Dunstore's strikers. And before we could even blink, he said, thanks, and was gone out the door. I'm nearly sure he said his wife's name was Sandra, but I could be remembering it wrong. Anyway, that was the detail we got. And there were so many chance encounters like that on those few days. People saying, I remember that, or I was there on that day, or is that really Katarazma's table? That's another story for another day. Those chance encounters, though, they told a story all on their own. Welcome back to Irish Global Solidarity in 100 Objects, the podcast from developmenteducation.ie. From the 1904 casement report detailing abuses in the Congo Free State, which was under the private ownership of King Leopold II of Belgium, to Mary Robinson's role as High Commissioner for Human Rights, Irish people have been active as rapporteurs on human rights issues internationally. Our next guest is another incredible example in this tradition and needs no introduction. We all know him, his legacy and his contributions in both the political sphere and that of the arts. Before he was elected the ninth president of Ireland, before he was appointed as Ireland's first minister for the arts and Labour Party spokesman for foreign affairs in the Irish Parliament, Michael D. Higgins was a freshman politician in 1981 when he intervened in a heated exchange about El Salvador. That exchange is recorded during the height of a civil war taking place far from the island of Ireland and is the object featured in today's episode. While we all spent Christmas in semi-states of lockdown due to the pandemic we find ourselves currently living through, he addressed us and called for solidarity, care, compassion and kindness. Four words which, I feel, encapsulate his actions in public life. Thank you so much for joining us, President Higgins. You've been described as many things, a poet, a writer, a statesman, a human rights advocate, an academic and a teacher. Why did you choose to go into public life? The principal reason was the circumstances of my own life and family and their background. That was, I think, the primary reason. But early on in my life, I resolved to, as Connolly might have put it, to seek to apply the gifts of hand and brain and to deliver them for fellow citizens. Mm -hmm. I felt that it wasn't just I was blocked in relation to any possibility, but that whole generations and classes had been. When I first stood for election in 1969, I was very conscious that confining myself to an academic world, which I'd gained, I had gained access really by chance and effort, because it was in pre-grant times, and it was now 
an area in which I was likely to spend a great deal of time, but that that could be a limitation, that that was something I could not accept. People from backgrounds such as mine did not go to university, did not qualify in other universities, and certainly for did not normally teach in university. So while I loved my time as a university teacher, the public arena was where I wanted the wider debate. And that is also, of course, why many years later I decided to write a column for Hot Press from 1981 to 1993, because I wanted really to take what I was doing in human rights and the debates in economics and so on to a wider public. Participating in public life also was part of a tradition in my family, and so it, it was part of the view I had of what my role in life might be. And then later on it would be inspired by the values that Sabine and I shared from participation in the world of the arts. Absolutely. Yeah. Parliamentary democracy, of which I've been speaking, is terribly important, but we should never forget that because for so many years people in Ireland and elsewhere have struggled to have their own parliament, struggled to have the right to participate in it, to take decisions in it. But as citizens of a democracy, we have the right, I think, indeed the duty to participate in the public decision-making that affects the lives of all of us. And it is a right that we should all be encouraged to exercise in our different ways and capacities. If we want to realise our dreams of a real republic, in which we can all participate equally in the shaping of a shared future, then we should, I think, all of us encourage one another to deepen our political literacy, our commitment, and evolve strategies of knowing and exercising our power and our advocacy for difference. Allow each other to be heard too in the public debate. Yeah, for sure. Uh, you asked me about my academic life then as a statutory lecturer in the Department of Political Science and Sociology at University College Galway, now the National University of Ireland Galway. I engage with, the write- with writing and lecturing and teaching and all of these issues. But also, I was involved now in a political career which would focus on the pursuit of equality for all citizens. After all, before I became Uchtaran Ahern President of Ireland in 2011, I had served as a Choctaw Member of Parliament for the Galway West constituency from 1981 on and off to 2011. I had been Minister of Arts, Culture and the Gaelic from 1993 to 97. I was Mayor of Galway from 1981 to 1982, again in 90 to 91. I'd been in local politics as well as being a Senator from 73 to 77, and again as a university senator from 82 to 87. In all of these roles, my focus in public office has been to address issues concerning justice, social equality, social inclusion, anti-sectarianism, anti-racism, reconciliation. We are now, I believe, living through a period in which there is a perceptible desire by many of the citizens of the world to exit from an era of extreme individualism, where in the Western world the concept of society itself has been questioned and redefined narrowly and pejoratively, when the public space in so many Western countries has been commodified, we must now combine and cooperate, I suggest, for a recovery of the public world, which has become a space of contestation, a space that sets that which is democratic in tension with that which is unaccountable. Mm -hmm. 
those global forces that shape the market, for example, and impact on people's lives, operate mostly without visibility or accountability. I've written as well of the importance of a diverse, vibrant public space that retains for all citizens a capacity for expression and participation that might be the source of critical ideas, languages and tropes which can resist diktats such as those of the marketplace that might be demanding a narrow utility that are damaging the creativity in the wider shared areas of life beyond the sphere of consumption. This requires courage, it requires a process of recovery and of healing, with creative cultural expression being made possible in public places. I've always loved the public meetings and public gatherings, and it's the subject of one of the poems I made, I think, since I became president, of Saturdays Made Holy. Ah, okay. I think having access to the creativity of the self through interaction with others is powerful and important. Public life also offers you an opportunity to go out to the public world and take on the challenge of communicating that which has been the subject of maybe of your personal moral wrestling. It is about the experience of joy rather than the survival of life in a prescribed form that is unaccountable and one of the terms of which one has had on which one has had no influence at it. Some really important points there, President Higgins, especially around the role of the individual and individualism. Thanks for that. Objects have the capacity to act as reminders and as a lens to the past to show us how much has changed. And the change happens through ordinary, everyday struggles, such as the making of posters, books, labels, photographs and wall murals. Those outside the political sphere would rarely get an insight into the tabling of emotion, the work behind the scenes, what happens in the aftermath. Can you tell us some of your memories of this particular motion on El Salvador, which was included in our exhibition, Irish Global Solidarity in 100 Objects, and maybe what we've learned since then? El Salvador occupies a special place in my heart. My motion on El Salvador, which I tabled, for a dull air in debate on the 10th of December 1981, highlighted the atrocities in El Salvador, mm-hmm. human rights violations that were receiving scant attention at the time by the media, commentariat, and some of those holding public office didn't seem interested. Troque or Trocra uh, in Ireland was interested. And the motion received support across the board. Then later in 1981, on St. Stephen's Day, Sally O'Neill of Trocra contacted me about a massacre of more than 1,000 people in the village of El Mojote. And it was as a legislator then, in response, and a member of an Irish parliamentary delegation, that in January 1982, along with Sally O'Neill Sanchez, Niall Andrews and Patsy Lawler, I travelled to El Salvador at the invitation of those deeply concerned with human rights, including Marianela Garcia, who was then Secretary of the Human Rights Commission of El Salvador. Marianela, a few years later, tragically, was captured, raped and murdered. We travelled to investigate that horrific massacre, Sally and I, a massacre that had wiped out the small rural community of El Mojote on the 11th of December 1981, just a day after 
my motion had been discussed in the Irish Parliament. Sally and I spoke to the only survivor. I felt compelled to investigate the mass killings during a bloody civil war, to bear witness, to take the risks that were necessary, so that we might share with a wider international audience the sense of what we had seen and the messages. The messages I had heard on the rubbish dumps where the bodies were placed or at the morgue. For a decade what happened at El Mahote was denied and Sally and I were accused of having invented the whole thing. Then in later years forensic anthropology would lay out all the bodies and the Inter-American Court of Human Rights in Costa Rica would judge it to be genocide. Wow. Many years later when I returned as President of Ireland to El Salvador this time I was given an award by its parliament, by the University of Central America and the keys of the city of El Salvador. Quite a change for me, asked to leave. Being deported effectively, my most moving experience, I recall on that a second return, was meeting Marianella's mother and relatives of some of the 16,000 people that had been murdered in 1981 alone. I remember... I contacted journalists from the New York Times and the Washington Post after I had heard all the detail of the El Mahote massacre and this led to an international debate. Shocked that US trained soldiers were involved in such killings, a motion calling for an end to arms sales in El Salvador was passed by 84 votes to 12 by the United States Senate on the proposal of Senator Ted Kennedy. And I was in Washington addressing meetings in the United States cities and then going on to Washington lobbying for that motion. But when I reflect on this time, as I do often, I am reminded of the women and men of El Salvador whom I met in the early 1980s, whose commitment to the defence of human rights and the pursuit of social justice, whose courage and outstanding spirit in the face of the widespread violence that was then tearing apart Salvadorian society. They've remained with me uh, as a source of inspiration. I admire their courage. So my connection with El Salvador and its people would go on to be part of several initiatives in the 1980s which influenced my outlook and participation in the world. They informed my conviction that no level of repression and violence can extinguish a people's thirst for social change that respect for human rights is the fundamental basis of the rule of law, and that, morally speaking, the, the gaze of those in whom the public has placed their trust cannot and should not be averted. Unfortunately, atrocities such as that which occurred in El Mahote have continued to occur in so many other parts of the world over the past four decades, be it invasions, civil wars, ethnic cleansing, religious wars, or other forms of insurgencies resulting in persecution, in casualties, genocide. We must fight the natural inclination, however, may I suggest, to fall into despair. It would be wrong to conclude that humans are simply committed to repeating these mistakes of the past as some form of inevitable human weakness. So while then, of course, our best hope remains, as it does at institutional level, in peaceful multilateral engagement, we must do so much more. Multilateralism has driven major advances for people across the world, poverty alleviation, better health care, education, women's empowerment, conflict resolution, peacekeeping and peace building. 
and the progress made in the development of international law is a significant testament to the steps for humanity we can take when the international community is working together, even in harmony. We've learned that we must defend, strengthen and advocate for multilateralism. Yet all of this needs a deepening to those who are involved in experience and struggle. Changing circumstances, too, have to be seized on for ending corrosive inequalities rather than allowing them to deepen and manifest themselves in new ways. Wow, that's an incredible insight into what was happening in El Salvador and beyond at the time, which makes your speech in the doll all the more powerful and important. During your intervention on El Salvador, you're quoted as saying, It is important that an assembly like this, which is privileged in the Western world to enjoy the freedom to discuss conditions of debate and difference, should not be silent on this issue, that we should speak strongly and unequivocally on it. And in response to that, Deputy Noel Brown replied, In taking our protestation here so far away from the problem, are we likely to have any real effect on it? This exhibition was organised as a rebuttal to that commonly encountered argument. Are we likely to have any real effect on it? After a long career working in global solidarity, what do you think Ireland's impact has been overall? Dr Noel Brown was a dear friend. I do want to say how much I am in admiration and admire and in solidarity with all those who have given witness in conflicts anywhere in the world. But I think I've just given an example of how words in Parliament were followed with risk-taking on the ground. And then after that witness, pursuit of an objective sustained with results in both revelation and later conviction for genocide even. Mm-hmm. So, But Ireland itself has a lengthy history of humanitarian engagement and that record constitutes a tradition now that has become linked strongly to the positive aspects of Irish national identity. Mm-hmm. I think the experiences of famine and of immigration are undoubtedly significant influences on Ireland's foreign policy. It affects our global solidarity and our approach to overseas aid. The early architects of Ireland's foreign policy, I think, had a defined sense of Ireland's history and political traditions as having provided our country with this specific ethical and emancipatory perspective on world affairs. And this view is widely shared by the Irish people. Wow. Yet, I do want to issue a warning, for I believe that the most vulnerable people before, through and after the Irish famine of 1845-7, were the cottiers, exploited by classes above them. These were people paying 30 shillings a year for a bohon and a, a place to plant potatoes and working for five pence a day. Wow. I think they were, as I've said, exploited by the class above them, small farmers, who were in turn exploited by larger farmers and then in turn others, irresponsible landlords, sitting at the apex. So the Irish people did not equally share the famine or any of its consequences. And this is reflected equally in the inhibition that seems there of Irish historians and Irish scholars and the Irish people to deal adequately with the inequalities associated with social class. I think, however, the good side is that 
Whether it was in the response to the war in Biafra in the 1960s or the famines in Bangladesh and Ethiopia in the 70s and 80s or the response to the Indian Ocean tsunami or the Haiti earthquake in more recent times, in all of these crises in between, one has to just be, take great confidence and hope from the fact that the Irish people have shown on these kind of occasions an, an eagerness to offer their help to the suffering and the most vulnerable. And now, as we just taken again a two-year seat on the United Nations Security Council, Ireland has a unique opportunity to play a really significant role on humanitarian matters at the highest level of multilateral engagement and to look at the structural basis of problems that have not been solved. It is my sincere hope that matters of peace-building and peacekeeping, the elimination of global poverty, the strengthening of multilateralism and reform of the United Nations will be issues in which Ireland will engage positively and with courage by offering its expertise and experience as a country with a significant track record in these areas. The good news, I think, is, is that Ireland's election showed that Ireland is widely perceived by United Nations members as having an authenticity that will ensure delivery on these issues on which it campaigned. It has a record of independence and consistency in voting on issues, and, for example, it has consistently advocated for a reduction in armaments, armaments which are a great scandal. Thank you, President Higgins. Ireland is certainly a country which punches well above its weight in terms of its global contribution, and I think you've outlined some great examples of this. Forty years later, your testimony on El Salvador in December 1981 is an important reminder of the many roles that human rights defenders from Ireland have played. What advice would you have for young people today thinking about their own journeys in acting on issues so far away in today's world? Well, first of all, may I say that the quality of intergenerational exchanges are very important and indeed they can define a society. Younger citizens are potentially, of course, our greatest asset in tackling the great global challenges we face in contemporary society and on which we have failed to offer an answer. Young people are increasingly important drivers of change. They are those who have energy. And I think the empowerment of young people, acquiring the skills and the critical awareness, along with the opportunities to positively impact through their own lives and the lives of others and organisations and communities, I think is very important. But making the changes is our shared responsibility. So many young people wish to take an active role in bringing about positive change, and they do so with a sense of, as I have said, of enthusiasm and energy. And both social and environmental responsibility, they have too. And modern technology is continuing to make our world a smaller place. So today, as we share a world that is vulnerable, a generation of young people for whom cultural, geographical, language and ethnic differences need no longer be barriers, they can enable a shared youth culture of common values, aspirations and desires, that is profoundly ethical and respectful of diversity. But my recommendation to young people who wish to play their part in shaping a better future, if it is to be most effective, it is to strive to play an activist role. If you wish to turn your visions into reality, well, then you must be well-informed, open-minded and able to listen and 
have courage to take what is unpopular, but ethical and moral. Mm-hmm. So important. I think they must too be open to taking and having respect for those generous and brave individuals who have in previous generations trailblazed a path before them. In particular, I would say, pay respect to those who fought and lost in their time. And after all, those who have succeeded them have gained from those early shafts that were fired at the future by people who had what was important in their hearts and minds. It is equally important that that we all seek a society and that you seek a society that will empower you to operate like this. It is important to accept that if a country is to truly engage with its young people, it is important that an older generation listens to its youth, includes them in its decision-making process, incorporates them into organisations and groups where their voice can make a difference alongside others in equal terms, respects them as key stakeholders in policy formation, is generous and open-minded enough to share where possible the powers and privileges which have, in less enlightened times, been limited to coming with adulthood. Young people must, of course, I suggest as well, reject any attempt to cut them off from previous generations and its radicals, female and male. So if you as a young person are to affect positive change, you would need to be a person who is unafraid to ask the critical questions about the kind of world we inhabit, to aspire towards a fully conscious and searching life, to be the arrow, not the target, and to see that nothing is inevitable in the profile of an unequal planet. We must let each other know that we together, of all ages, have each other's respect in mind as we share our trust and our belief that we are willing to share together our visions and hopes as we work for a better, more inclusive and sustainable future. Thank you once again, President Higgins, for taking the time to speak to us. I should say that this was recorded remotely during lockdown, so a special thank you to the Office of the President for helping to facilitate that for us. I think the President's comments around intergenerational exchanges is an interesting one, an important reminder of our shared responsibility for making changes. It's up to all of us to take an active role in bringing about positive change wherever we can. Our next guest is somebody who clearly takes that opportunity when it presents itself to her in the field of journalism.